You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 8th day of August, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners back to The Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into my websites, including, of course, the flagship website, CorbettReport.com, as well as the other sites that I run and operate, including AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, NewWorldNextWeek.com, and ClimateGate.tv, where you can find out all of the latest information about the ongoing meltdown of the catastrophic anthropogenic global warming hoax. I would also, of course, like listeners to support all of those websites that help to broadcast, podcast, syndicate, collect, and distribute all of the material from the Corbett Report, including MediaMonarchy.com, TragedyAndHope.com, Archive.org, RadioForAll.net, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, and tv.globalresearch.ca. And also this week, I would like to direct my listeners' attention to another place where you can go if you ever have problems downloading the latest episode of The Corbett Report for any reason. One of my listeners has taken it upon himself to create a mirror of all of the podcast episodes. So if you go to altbib, that's short for alternative bibliography, altbib.com slash Corbett, you can find a listing of, I believe, all of the episodes of The Corbett Report going all the way back to episode 1, independently hosted on the altbib.com server, meaning that if there's any problem with corbettreport.com, you can go there to listen to any of the episodes. And it looks like he's also managed to mirror all of the documentation for all of those episodes as well. So an incredible amount of work has gone into this, and my hat's off to everyone out there who is taking the initiative to help spread this information and to make sure that it's diffusely spread around the internet so that if there's ever a problem with my servers or anything happens to me, heaven forfend, there will still be traces of the Corbett Report out there online. So now, in addition to the archive.org archive of previous podcast episodes, which only goes back to about episode 70 of this podcast, we also have altbib.com slash Corbett, where people can go to download other episodes of this podcast. An incredible resource, so certainly please make use of that if you ever have problems reaching CorbettReport.com, which I certainly hope you never do. And on that note, let's get to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 8th day of August 2010. And now for the real news. Earlier this week, the Electronic Privacy Information Center won a Freedom of Information ruling from the U.S. Marshal Service revealing that certain government agencies are storing the images from naked body scanners at security checkpoints despite previous government assurances to the contrary. 
The U.S. Marshals Service has admitted storing full body scan images of people entering the federal courthouse in Orlando, Florida. The federal agency hasn't stored just a few. They've got more than 35,000 images on record. And it's no surprise that this is now raising new questions about these scanners, the ones being used at airport security checkpoints as well. We have some samples of the images saved by the Marshall's millimeter wave machine in Orlando. They aren't particularly revealing, but what is so disturbing to privacy advocates is that they were saved at all after so many assurances from government officials that the machines would not do that. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano in March. The machines are not set to store uh, images. They're not set to transmit images, uh, such as the one you referred mm -hmm. to. We're really talking about, you know, older iterations of the technology. Sure, but, but, but we but want to deal with those as we go through the, the implementation. Sure, but can you guarantee, Madam Secretary, again, that we will never, ever hear a story of somebody inappropriately storing or transmitting these images? Look, I'm going to tell you, we are not, we are not retaining, we are not keeping. They're not designed for that at all. Right, but that doesn't sound like an unequivocal no. The scanners were introduced earlier in the year in the wake of the hysteria surrounding the so-called underwear bomber last Christmas. They were marketed as a way of preventing such terror attacks in the future, but such rhetoric fails to take into account the fact that the underwear bomber bypassed all regular screening procedures, even managing to board the plane despite being a known terror suspect because the State Department was ordered not to revoke his visa by one of the U.S. intelligence agencies. Despite the startling nature of this admission by Undersecretary of State for Management Patrick F. Kennedy in testimony before the House Homeland Security Committee in January of this year, the fact that Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib was protected and allowed to board the plane by the very agencies that were supposedly watching him has not been mentioned once on network news in the U.S. Nor was the fact that Muttalib himself appeared surprised by the fire and actually helped to put it out reported on by mainstream news, except for NPR. Nor was the fact that the scanners had already been ordered in advance and were being prepared to be rolled out in January anyway mentioned in stories about the need for increased safety at airports. Nor was Columbia University professor Dr. David Brenner's warning that machines deliver 20 times more cancer-causing radiation than originally thought widely reported. Nor were the financial ties of people like former Homeland Security Chief Michael Chertoff to the companies that manufacture the scanners disclosed when Chertoff was making media appearances, extolling the need for such scanners. Last month it was revealed that all passengers at El Paso International Airport are being put through the scanners as the primary screening method. While groups like Epic continue to be at the forefront of fighting the use of these machines, Widespread public apathy about the subject means that the government will continue rolling the machines out in more airports over the coming year. In other news, Australian TV news is beginning to ask serious questions about the practice of mass medicating the public without consent by adding fluoride to the water supply. But first, we consume it every day with the reassurance from our health authorities that it is doing us good. The truth is fluoride is a poison and adding it to our drinking water is an evolving social experiment started 40 years ago. Now one of the world's top fluoride experts has issued a grim warning about what it could be doing to our health and that of unborn children. Yet as Frank Pangello reports, you'll get a different spin from dentists and health bureaucrats. 
we consider that as a poison, why should a poison be in drinking water? The poison is fluoride. It's there because government health bureaucrats and dentists tell us it's for our common good, for reducing tooth decay, and at levels which won't harm you. That doesn't wash with Professor A.K. Shashila. They should realise it's the poisonous substance. It doesn't promote health. It is, it is a disease-causing agent, and the fluoridation should be stopped as early as possible. Professor Shashila is one of the world's leading experts on fluoride. Her own extensive research, along with 70 years of data in India, backs up what she's saying, and it's most disturbing. I would consider the, the, a pregnant mother taking fluoride-contaminated products, I'm using the word products, which includes water, toothpaste, black tea, uh, uh, processed food products which has fluoride. Any liquid? Any liquid, anything. Where, uh, where her urinary fluoride is high, she is going to cause a lot of damage to the fetus, the growing embryo, the infant which is going to be born. The report comes as study after study continues to confirm what has long been known. That sodium fluoride is a neurotoxin that attacks the central nervous system, causes cancer, increases likelihood of bone fractures, damages the liver and kidney, disrupts the thyroid gland, lowers IQ, causes dental fluorosis, and, when ingested, does not help prevent cavities. Despite the public health disaster that is the fluoridated water experiment, and despite the ethical concerns raised by adding a neurotoxin to the water supply without the informed consent of the public, and without knowing the specific health record or circumstances of each person who is ingesting this forced medication, researchers are now raising the specter of adding other drugs to the water supply in the name of public health. Recently, bioethicist and medical historian Jacob Appel made headlines for his call to use lithium and other cognitive enhancers in the public water supply to reduce suicide or produce other beneficial effects, citing the success of the fluoridated water idea as a basis for such action. On a positive note, more people are resisting the use of such forced medication tactics. The Dayton Daily News reported that last Thursday that a group of teenagers in Huber Heights, Ohio has formed an action group to petition their city council to remove fluoride from their local water supply. Similar groups are popping up all across America, Australia, and other handful of nations that actually practice water fluoridation. Finally this week, the 9-11 first responders held a press conference in New York striking back at the Congress which is content to let them die of their 9-11 related injuries because of petty partisan wrangling over the 9-11 responder health care bill. They say this is an entitlement, this bill. You're damn skippy, it's an entitlement. Because these men and women behind me work under the false pretense that the air was safe. The government lied. The federal government lied. And they've dragged their feet for nine years. So you're right. We're entitled to health care and compensation because we're sick and we're dying. And going on a six-week vacation. Really? Serious? Six weeks? You couldn't take six hours on the floor and put this on as a regular rules vote? Now I direct this to Congress, I'll make it short and sweet. You didn't ask, we came. You didn't ask, we served. You didn't ask, we stayed. We're not asking. We're demanding that this bill be passed. We will not go away. In the six weeks 
that you're on vacation, we will still receive the phone calls from those who can't put food on the table, pay the bills, get to their medical appointments. But as they go, we will still stand here and fight for this bill. Thank you. Now stay tuned to CorporateReport.com for episode 141 of the Corporate Report podcast, How to Divide and Conquer, where we take a look at the documented historical examples of government breaking the law in order to maintain the social order. Welcome, my friends, to episode 141 of the Corporate Report, How to Divide and Conquer. Let's begin today's episode with a small thought experiment. Let's imagine that you are one of the unimaginably wealthy and well-connected members of the plutocracy. And let's imagine that you, in this position, actually wanted to keep your place in this position. You wanted to maintain the social order to ensure your continuing ability to wield your power, money, and influence in any way you like, for as long as you and your progeny shall live. The question is, how do you go about maintaining your unimaginable wealth and your power in society. Well, of course, one method by which you would maintain your power is to disguise your power. Yes, there are rich people on this planet, but only those who have managed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and live out the American dream, making themselves wealthy by their own hard work. And to suggest otherwise is conspiracy theory. And yes, the leaders of the political parties, they are surely the ones who are really in charge of our society, and there's no need to look into the back rooms of political offices or boardrooms or the Bohemian Grove or Skull and Bones or anywhere else, that for that matter, other than what we see on TV to understand what is happening in our society. You would, of course, attempt to foster these beliefs in the public as much as possible. You would, of course, try to distract the public as much as possible with beer and cheeseburgers and football, and you would generally do anything in your power to stop people from rising up against you, or even thinking about rising up against you. Now, being one of the well-connected Plutarchs, you, of course, do know that there are methods on the way and in the pipeline and already being implemented to some extent to actually scientifically drug and dumb down the public into accepting their servitude, even coming to love it, as some famous technocrats have said. But it's still some time off before you can count on the public being completely apathetic towards their situation, or completely undesirous of knowing who really is operating in the power centers of their society. So inevitably, there will be movements from time to time that will arise that will pose an actual threat to you and your position on the top of the power pyramid. The question is, what do you do to counteract that? The phrase divide and conquer has entered our political lexicon for a reason. And that reason is because it is an old trick, a trusted trick, and a trick that continues to work today. We have already looked at some of the aspects of this trick and how it's played out in our society in this podcast in the past, when we've deconstructed the left-right political paradigm which props up the existing power hierarchy, for example, or when we've taken a look at the problem-reaction-solution Hegelian dialectic method of steering society towards your pre-engineered solutions to problems that you yourself create. And both of those methods are pretty good methods at steering 
the natural tendency of society to be contrarian and to want to rise up against dictators and using that energy against society itself to clamor for its own servitude, which is an incredible state of affairs, but nonetheless something that we've observed time and again in this podcast. But there are other tricks which have been used, are being used, and no doubt will continue to be used because they are equally effective. One such trick was, if not first developed, at least first widely implemented and carefully crafted by the FBI in the 1950s and 60s under the name COINTELPRO, which stands for Counterintelligence Program. This was a shadowy FBI program to infiltrate and disrupt any movement that, well, J. Edgar Hoover or whoever was in a position of power thought might disrupt the existing social order. And if that seems like an unbelievably broad mandate for one of the national federal law enforcement agencies to be taking up, well, you're not the only one who thought so. In fact, the United States Senate began an inquiry into the activities of such agencies in such programs, and they released that report in 1976 under the title Final Report of the Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, otherwise known as the Church Committee. I'll include in the documentation section for today's episode a link to the actual electronic copy of that final report, which really is a must-read, because it exposes so many of the tactics which were developed by the COINTELPRO program in particular, but which no doubt are still employed today in numerous ways, which we will get to shortly. But reading from the introduction and summary to that report, quote, COINTELPRO is the FBI acronym for a series of covert action programs directed against domestic groups. In these programs, the Bureau went beyond the collection of intelligence to secret action defined to disrupt and neutralize target groups and individuals. COINTELPRO began in 1956 in part because of frustration with Supreme Court rulings limiting the government's power to proceed overtly against dissident groups. It ended in 1971 with the threat of public exposure. In the intervening 15 years, the Bureau conducted a sophisticated vigilante operation aimed squarely at preventing the exercise of First Amendment rights of speech and association on the theory that preventing the growth of dangerous groups and the propagation of dangerous ideas would protect the national security and deter violence. Many of the techniques used would be intolerable in a democratic society, even if all of the targets had been involved in violent activity. But COINTELPRO went far beyond that. The unexpressed major premise of the programs was that a law enforcement agency has the duty to do whatever is necessary to combat perceived threats to the existing social and political order. End quote. Once again, I exhort and implore my listeners to go and read through this voluminous document, which I, of course, cannot possibly do justice to in a short excerpt here. But it's extremely important that people understand that, yes, the government has been, in the past, documentably, actively involved in trying to disrupt people who are forming groups that go against the prevailing orthodoxy. It also reads like an encyclopedia of techniques that can be used by the government to disrupt such groups. 
and the efforts of the COINTELPRO program against dissident groups and those that they thought were dangerous to the existing social order included efforts to prevent speaking, efforts to prevent teaching, efforts to prevent writing and publishing, efforts to prevent meeting, and some of the techniques that were used in on these groups included propaganda, reprint mailings, use of the friendly media, bureau-authored pamphlets and flyers, the encouragement of violence between rival groups, anonymous mailings, using hostile third parties against target groups, disseminating derogatory information to family, friends, and associates of members of dangerous organizations, using and abusing government processes, selectively using law enforcement, interfering with judicial processes, falsely accusing those involved in these parties of being affiliated with suspect groups, etc., etc., etc. This report goes through all of these methods that were used in the past and are undoubtedly still being used today. But let's get some perspective on this. And for that, let's turn to a clip from C-SPAN, from a report that they did in 2006 entitled Intelligence Activities and the Rights of Americans, which was a retrospective panel looking back at the church committee and some of the shocking violations and abuses of powers that were uncovered by that committee. And this panel, looking back 30 years later at the church committee, includes Senator Walter Huddleston, Senator Walter Mondale, and Frederick Schwartz, Senior Counsel of the Brennett Center for Justice. Let's listen to some of the things that they thought were important about what the church committee did and what it uncovered about COINTELPRO and such government programs. But the fact that the United States government of America would call in two mafia people to help us eliminate some guy illegally by murder because we disagreed with him is, is the kind of thing we were confronted with almost across the board during this investigation. The major part of what we covered was uh, activities against American citizens in this country. And it, it was very extensive and beyond what most people even realize today. Yes, I think we were all um, uh, surprised by the magnitude and the depth of what, what we saw. If I can just say this, we need a strong FBI. We need a strong CIA and an NSA. We have enemies and we have to deal with them. And every one of us wanted to make certain when we got done, that part was not compromised and indeed enhanced. But the th I was chairman of the domestic task force. And we, we were looking at uh, agencies that dealt domestically not just the FBI, but the Army and many other agencies that had become involved in one way or another. And when we got into the records, and ours was the only committee probably that's ever looked at a complete unprotected uh, files of the Bureau and these other agencies with virtually no restrictions on us at all, sending staff and experts into those files. And when they started coming back, I remember once he said, I can't believe what I read today. And he'd gotten into COINTELPRO, where they, they had targeted thousands and thousands of people for investigation based on no violation of the law, just um, hunches and suspicions, where they were tracking down Martin Luther King, who had committed no crimes, but they were tapping him, they were covering him, 
they were uh, they were on his case all the time, and they were trying to dismantle them as a leader of the civil rights movement. And there were many. We, we'll go into a lot of other things, I'm sure, before the night is over. But the fact that this could happen in America, this nation of laws and accountability, and and happened over so many years. Presidents of both political parties were involved in this. It was a bipartisan thing, and there was a lot of this that the agencies had to explain that were the result, directly or indirectly, of pressure from above. Yes, we were surprised. So who were the targets of these illegal activities of the U.S. government? Well, of course, anyone that was deemed to be subversive, from communist and socialist organizations to women's rights movements to black nationalist movement to the civil rights movement, states' rights groups, libertarian presidential candidates like Barry Goldwater, you name it, those people were targeted because they presented some sort of threat to the system. And as we heard in those shocking admissions from that C-SPAN retrospective on the Church Committee, the tactics used by the COINTELPRO program went all the way up to the level of political assassinations. And for more on that, I highly suggest that people find out more about the story of Fred Hampton, who was assassinated by the Chicago Police Department as part of the COINTELPRO operation. An absolutely grisly story but one that needs to be told. So I certainly hope people will investigate that. But right now, why don't we listen to an actual clip from the church committee hearings where two FBI agents testify about the harassment of Martin Luther King by the FBI. So it is small wonder that the civil rights movement was also subjected to heavy attack by Hoover. Billions of government dollars were spent in this direction. Many of these activities were not only unwarranted, but of questionable legality. The congressional hearings into the assassination of Dr. King bore this out. Two FBI agents testified before a Senate committee chaired by Senator Frank Church. I'm trying to find out what it was that impelled the, some part of the FBI to pursue Martin Luther King with such an obsession. And what I understood that answer to be is, first of all, it was not any suspicions of the commission of a federal crime. None of the literature showed up a single suggestion that Martin Luther King had committed or was about to commit a crime. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. But at this point, much of what was being done did involve challenges to local laws. And there is a very strong suggestion that King was seen as rallying the lawbreakers and would-be lawbreakers albeit for a cause that, that, that sounded pure. Looking now in terms of if we look at what might have gotten the Bureau started, if we remember at the same time he is extremely critical of the Bureau's own law enforcement efforts. We see throughout these documents and the new left documents that it is taboo to criticize the Bureau right. and particularly the Director. Well, did he ever, was he ever charged with uh, fomenting violence? Did he, ever, did he ever participate in violence? Was it ever alleged that he was about to be violent? That was no. the very opposite of his philosophy, Senator. So that it, it was neither the fear of commission of a crime or the commission of violence. Was there any serious charge that he himself was a communist? No such charge ever was made. So that what was left then was a decision on the part of some persons or person 
within the FBI that he should nevertheless be pursued. And the basis for that apparently was political. The decision that he was dangerous or potentially dangerous to someone's notion of what uh, this country should be doing and a further theory that the FBI possessed the ability to enter into this field and to investigate and to intimidate and seek to neutralize and indeed replace a civil rights leader that they thought to be uh, politically uh, unacceptable. Uh, Is that correct? Yes. Correct. All right. And the tactics they used apparently uh, had no end. Um, microphonic uh, surveillance of hotel rooms. They included um, informants. They included um, sponsoring of uh, letters uh, signed by phony names to relatives and friends and organizers. They involved even plans to replace him with someone else the FBI was to select as a national civil rights leader. Is that correct? Yes, that plan uh, was didn't get very yeah, far. But, but it was seriously considered, and Mr. Hoover penned a note to that suggestion, uh, commending its authors. Did they not? Yes. It also included um, a direct, uh, an indirect attempt to persuade the Pope not to see him. And many other people. A direct attempt to persuade uh, one of our major universities not to grant him a doctorate degree. That's correct. Uh, after the March on Washington, there was an acceleration. He was defined because of his speech in that demonstration in Washington as the most dangerous and effective leader in the country. And there was a paper battle between within the Bureau as to how best to attack him, and he was attacked. Uh, after Time magazine named him as Man of the Year, again, the Bureau finds that reprehensible, believes it must attack and destroy. Uh, when he was given the Nobel Prize, again, they seek to discredit Dr. King with the persons who welcomed him back from that award. Uh, when he began to speak out against the Vietnam War, there's a new crescendo of efforts by the Bureau to discredit and destroy Dr. King. So, returning to today's original thought experiment, it seems like we have, in the COINTELPRO program, a pretty good answer to the question of how that Plutarch can manage to retain his power and standing in society, despite the public's natural inclination to rise up against those who are trying to oppress them. By infiltrating any group that does pose an actual threat to society, and then turning it against itself through infighting, violence, false accusations propaganda, and the like, you can, in fact, dismantle those movements before they do pose any genuine threat. And it is absolutely no coincidence that Martin Luther King was assassinated just as he started to connect the civil rights movement into a larger peace and social justice movement hinging on the economic rights of man. But, the official history goes, COINTELPRO was 1956 to 1971, and thereafter, abandoned. Because the government in our age would never do anything like this. Right? In media news, new questions are being raised over the relationship between the Pentagon and bloggers. 
Wired.com has uncovered a 2006 study written for the U.S. Special Operations Command that suggests the military should clandestinely recruit or hire prominent bloggers. The report stated, quote, Hiring a block of bloggers to verbally attack a specific person or promote a specific message may be worth considering. The report also suggested the Pentagon hack blogs that promote messages that are antithetical to U.S. interests. The report stated, quote, hacking the site and subtly changing the messages and data, merely a few words or phrases, may be sufficient to begin destroying the bloggers' credibility with the audience. Oh, okay. so governments today might still do things like that. And uh, oh, by the way, no, that's not limited to the United States. In fact, uh, my home country of Canada also does such things to its citizens, as evidenced by a May 25th article from examiner.com. Harper government pays organization to patrol political chat forums. Quote, the Canadian government has been caught paying a media group to monitor online political discussion and respond to misinformation and even correcting what it considers misinformation. Efforts to spread government-sanctioned propaganda is the latest scandal to hit the Harper administration. The government has a lot of power that it feels the need to monitor public bulletin boards or places where people express views and then respond to that. Seems to me going beyond a reasonable action the government should be taking, said UBC computer science professor and president of the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association Richard Rosenberg, end quote. And just for the record, that is the understatement of the century. Yes, absolutely, the fact that governments are monitoring online discussions and paying organizations to correct the record with government-sponsored propaganda should be a hint at the lengths to which governments will go in order to make sure that their version of events becomes the public record. No, this is not surprising to anyone who has been following events of recent years, and no, it should not be that surprising to anyone that the COINTELPRO program is still being used. At least the tactics of the COINTELPRO program are still being used, even if the program itself is officially disbanded. And if you think that this is just all something that's concocted in backroom meetings and isn't part of actual strategy, it's just a hodgepodge response by the government to criticism, well, think again, there is in fact very much a strategy behind what's going on, and that was exposed earlier this year. So let's take a look at Salon.com from January 15th, 2010, from Glenn Greenwald's blog, Obama Confidence Spine-Chilling Proposal. Quote, Cass Sunstein has long been one of Barack Obama's closest confidants. Often mentioned as a likely Obama nominee to the Supreme Court, Sunstein is currently Obama's head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, where, among other things, he is responsible for overseeing policies relating to privacy, information quality, and statistical programs. In 2008, while at Harvard Law School, Sunstein co-wrote a truly pernicious paper proposing that the U.S. government employ teams of covert agents and pseudo-independent advocates to cognitively infiltrate online groups and websites, as well as other activist groups, which advocate views that Sunstein deems false conspiracy theories about the government. This would be designed to increase citizens' faith in government officials and undermine the credibility of conspiracists. End quote. Well, let's jump directly to that paper, and you can follow along with me if you're looking at the documentation links for today's episode, where we can see the Conspiracy Theories paper by Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule from the Harvard Law School. 
And we can read the abstract from that paper, quote, Many millions of people hold conspiracy theories. They believe that powerful people have worked together in order to withhold the truth about some important practice or some terrible event. A recent example is the belief, widespread in some parts of the world, that the attacks of 9-11 were carried out not by Al-Qaeda, but by Israel or the United States. Those who subscribe to conspiracy theories may create serious risks, including risks of violence, and the existence of such theories raises significant challenges for policy and law. The first challenge is to understand the mechanisms by which conspiracy theories prosper. The second challenge is to understand how such theories might be undermined. Such theories typically spread as a result of identifiable cognitive blunders operating in conjunction with informational and reputational influences. A distinctive feature of conspiracy theories is their self-sealing quality. Conspiracy theorists are not likely to be persuaded by an attempt to dispel their theories. They may even characterize that very attempt as further proof of the conspiracy. Because those who hold conspiracy theories typically suffer from a crippled epistemology in accordance with which it is rational to hold such theories, the best response consists in cognitive infiltration of extremist groups. Various policy dilemmas, such as the question whether it is better for government to rebut conspiracy theories or to ignore them, are explored in this light. End quote. So what kinds of pernicious conspiracy theorizing would Cass Sunstein seek to undermine with his cognitive infiltration of these conspiracy theory groups? Well, such things as the unbelievable and disgusting idea that sunlight is actually healthy, or that climate change is neither occurring nor likely to occur, something which no one is really disputing, only the fact that this is happening due to man-made carbon dioxide. But don't let the facts get in the way of a good scaremongering, which is what Cass Sunstein's report amounts to, in that he's trying to marshal his readers into combating this horrible and pernicious social cancer that is the conspiracy theorists. So what does Cass Sunstein believe this cognitive infiltration to consist of? Well, helpfully he explains later on in his article, quote, one promising tactic is cognitive infiltration of extremist groups. By this we do not mean 1960s-style infiltration with a view to surveillance and collecting information, possibly for use in future prosecutions. Rather, we mean that government efforts might succeed in weakening or even breaking up the ideological and epistemological complexes that constitute these networks and groups. How might this tactic work? Recall that extremist networks and groups, including the groups that purvey conspiracy theories, typically suffer from a kind of crippled epistemology. Hearing only conspiratorial accounts of government behavior, their members become ever more prone to believe and generate such accounts. Informational and reputational cascades, group po polarization, and selection effects suggest that the generation of ever more extreme views within these groups can be dampened or reversed by the introduction of cognitive diversity. We suggest a role for government efforts and agents in introducing such diversity. Government agents and their allies might enter chat rooms, online social networks, or even real space groups, and attempt to undermine percolating conspiracy theories by raising doubts about their factual premises, causal logic, or implications for political action. End quote. And yes, you can go on to read for yourself about how Sunstein actually muses about how governments may actually ban conspiracy theorizing. That's right, impose some sort of law or tax to actually 
penalize people who engage in, I guess, spreading information that the government doesn't like. Never mind, of course, that what Sunstein is proposing is actually illegal under U.S. law, as evidenced further on in that Glenn Greenwald article, quote, Indeed, there is a very strong case to make that what Sunstein is advocating is itself illegal under long-standing statutes prohibiting government propaganda within the U.S. aimed at American citizens. As explained in a March 21, 2005 report by the Congressional Research Service, publicity or propaganda is defined by the U.S. Government Accountability Office to mean either 1. Self-aggrandizement by public officials, 2. Purely partisan activity, or 3. Covert propaganda. By covert propaganda, GAO means information which originates from the government but is unattributed and made to appear as though it came from a third party. Covert government propaganda is exactly what Sunstein craves, end quote. More on this unbelievable, ridiculous proposal from Alan Watt of Cutting Through the Matrix. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt, and we're Cutting Through the Matrix. Now, I'm sure the buzz around all the different stations is, is on about... Uh, uh, President Obama's regulatory czar, the guy who's in charge of the Department of Information. We actually have Departments of Information, just like Big Brother, Orwell. And so Cass Sunstein apparently is this new czar, and he's quite a character. You look him up on Wikipedia and all his theories. I'll put up on a link on my site, cuttingthroughmatrix.com, uh, where you can see uh, a, a, a paper he wrote for Harvard a couple of years ago about conspiracy theorists and how they'd have to take down all the conspiracy theorists. This article here, where we read now, is by Aaron Klein, 2010 WorldNet Daily. It says, in a lengthy academic paper, President Obama's regulatory czar, Cass Sunstein, argued the U.S. government should ban conspiracy theorizing. To ban it, you see. Among the beliefs Sunstein would ban is advocating that the theories of global warming is a deliberate fraud. So I guess he'd lock us all up. Sunstein also recommends the government sends agents to infiltrate extremists. Now, isn't that conspiracy in itself? A conspiracy? He's a guy up with Obama's group. He recommends the government send agents to infiltrate extremists who supply conspiracy theories <laughs> to disrupt the efforts of the extremists to propagate their theories. In a 2008 Harvard Law paper, Conspiracy Theories, Sunstein and co-author Adrian Vermeule, a Harvard Law professor, ask, what can government do about conspiracy theories? Can you imagine asking government what to do? They're the guys who bring them all up. How do we get the public to do this? How do we get the public to do that? Because <laughs> I can say we can readily imagine a series of possible responses. Government might ban conspiracy theorizing. Government might impose some kind of tax, financial or otherwise, on those who disseminate such theories. In the 30-page paper obtained and reviewed by the World Net Daily, Sunstein argues the best government response to conspiracy theories is a cognitive infiltration of extremist groups. And I've told you, they always, through conspiracy, infiltrate groups. <laughs> These guys are the biggest conspiratorial characters on the planet. But of course what they're doing is banning or, or eliminating all competition of any other source of information or any other point of view. 
Sustein continues, we suggest a distinctive tactic for breaking up the hard core of extremists who supply conspiracy theories. Cognitive infiltration of extremist groups, they use internet galore, chat rooms, all that stuff. I've warned folk, been warned folk about that before. They've been doing it for years. Whereby government agents or their allies acting either virtually or in real space and either openly or anonymously will undermine the crippled epistemology of believers by planting doubts. You see, these guys did this with religion too, by the way. See, this is an old technique. Planting doubts about the theories and stylized facts that circulate within such groups, thereby introducing beneficial cognitive diversity. Sustenance governments agents might enter chat rooms, online social networks, or even real space groups and attempt to undermine percolating conspiracy theories by raising doubts about their factual premises, causal logic, or implications for political action. Sustain defined a conspiracy theory as an effort to explain some event or practice by reference to the machinations of powerful people who have also managed to conceal their role, just like Mr. Sustain here. <laughs> Some conspiracy theories recommended for ban by Sunstein include the theory of global warming as a deliberate fraud that will be illegal, the view that the Central Intelligence Agency was responsible for the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and the 96th crash of TWA Flight 800 was caused by a U.S. military missile, etc. Once again, Alan Watt of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Now, obviously not being the plutocrat mentioned in the initial thought experiment from today's episode, you and I are not in favor of these proposals. No matter what side of whatever phony political spectrum you or I might stand on, or whatever supposed doctrinal differences we might have on whatever issue, the point is that the mass of the people do not benefit in any way from a government that is seeking to infiltrate and disrupt any group which poses a threat to its sovereignty over us. Because, of course, we understand that the government is not sovereign over us, that we are sovereign individuals who have innate natural freedoms simply by virtue of existing on this planet that no government instituted by anyone under any circumstances can ever take away. So, rather than a thought experiment, we are now left with a very real and very pressing question. What are we to do about this problem? Because a problem it is, and a problem it has been for many decades, and a problem it will undoubtedly continue to be as long as it continues to work. As long as government agents can continue to pose as citizens and throw in cognitive dissent in order to try to disrupt groups in numerous ways, it will happen just as it has happened and is happening. Now, I'm sure for many of my listeners, I hardly need to go into the example of the 9-11 truth movement to display how such provocateurish actions have managed to cognitively disrupt many groups by introducing cognitive diversity in numerous, well, interesting ways and trying to make groups fight with each other over doctrinal disputes and keep them at each other's throat rather than concentrating on what 9-11 truth should be concentrated on, which of course is the justice for 9-11 victims. And of course also justice for 9-11 first responders, which is another key pillar of the 9-11 truth movement that often gets forgot when people start quibbling and squabbling over their doctrinal differences, which have been introduced by people acting in provocateurish ways. 
The question is, how can we disrupt this disruption? Is there a way to overcome what is happening here? And as always, the answer might be supplied by those who have come before us in the struggles that have already been waged against these very types of tactics. Earlier in today's podcast, we heard, for example, how Martin Luther King was hounded by the COINTELPRO program and FBI agents throughout his career as a leader and a speaker of the civil rights movement for daring to speak up on the power of nonviolent resistance and daring to talk about issues that really matter. So it's only natural that we turn to William Pepper, the lawyer who defended James Earl Ray in the assassination trial of Martin Luther King and who has written an act of state, the execution of Martin Luther King and orders to kill the truth behind the murder of Martin Luther King Jr., And in 2006, Dr. William F. Pepper addressed a 9-11 truth conference called Revealing the Truth, Reclaiming Our Future about the idea of cognitive infiltration of the 9-11 truth movement and what we must do in order to prevent that from having an effect on 9-11 truth. In my work on the King case, continually I have been faced with this information. I've been faced with people who, who had stories, who had evidence, who knew where the, where the rifle was, who were, it just goes on and on. Over 28 years, you can imagine people coming out of the, the woodwork. And for the most part, we were able to screen them out. But not, we were not always able to do it. And so whenever people come into you, um, and make you, uh, give you information if you're not careful enough in terms of your research and your corroboration, you can be discredited. And that that's frequently can happen. In 1995, New Year's Day, 96 actually, one of my colleagues was, um, had, he, he was an inside guy who had, had helped me uh, locate the mem- some of the members of the sniper team who had fled to Mexico, got a call. And he got a call from a guy who said he was, he was a colonel. And this colonel, um, we knew, was the man who had coordinated uh, all aspects of the hit on Martin King. He coordinated the photographers on the roof. He coordinated military intelligence down there. He coordinated the snipers. He coordinated the CIA guys who, uh, who put the snipers in position. He coordinated uh, uh, a, uh, the uh, Army Security Agency, ASA. Nobody ever heard of them. Those are the guys who do the most surreptitious um, wiretape tapping and phone tapping in those days, maybe to this day. He coordinated everyone, and he was the only one who knew what everyone was doing. He chose the sniper team himself. He's, he called, he called my, my colleague and he said, why don't you tell Bill Pepper, read his book, he's right, he's given me too much credit, however, I was just following orders. Uh, they will tell you I'm dead, but I'm alive. They've given me a new identity, and I live in Central America. I'm prepared to meet with you guys, and I'm prepared to lay out everything that I know. We started a series of meetings that went on for 18 months. Um, And it was a very interesting experience because he started to provide some information that he should, a guy like him should have known. But then it started to turn in the direction of trying to take control of the investigation and move us into ways that areas that I knew were wrong. And then it all became evident. It was a disinformation campaign, and they're very clever, what, how they do it. Very clever how they do it. 
So I'm going to say this group, more than any other that I can think of in terms of a movement, is going to be infiltrated, is infiltrated, and there are going to be all kinds of efforts to subvert your work, all kinds of efforts to corrupt your work, and all kinds of efforts to discredit you. Please understand that and take it in the spirit in which it's being given because this is what will happen and probably is happening. So please, your work is too important, your mission is too precious. Be careful in every aspect of the work. Make sure your, your allegations, your claims are well-founded because if they're not, you will be discredited. Stick to the truth, stick to the facts, stick to what is provable, make sure our information is correct, always verify our sources. Could there be any better prescription for what we need to do in any area of research, in any subject we're involved in, than that? No, there could not. Once again, William Pepper of WilliamPepper.com. Indeed, it is incumbent on each and every person listening to my voice right now that we all take it upon ourselves to be responsible with the information with which we are dealing. Because if we spend our time squabbling among each other over doctrinal disputes, or if we spend our time talking about things for which we have absolutely no verifiable evidence, or if we spend our time talking about things which we have not researched for ourselves but have merely heard someone else talk about, we will never be able to form a movement that will actually make a difference by presenting informed opposition to the existing social order. It is work, but work is necessary. The New World Order was not constructed overnight. It will not be deconstructed overnight. It is a process that requires painstaking labor of reproducing all of the evidence that you're presented with for yourself and understanding where that evidence comes from and understanding how it fits together for yourself. Because once again, when we start to rely on groups and groupthink, in order to understand the world around us, we can easily be infiltrated and easily be led in the wrong direction. This is precisely why I provide links and documentation to every single article, video, podcast episode, and interview that I conduct, because it is not my responsibility to force spoon-feed you each morsel of information. I am merely putting out those nuggets of wisdom that I have collected along the way and left the cookie crumb trail for for you to follow for yourself, because rest assured, the true change that we want to see in the world is staring you in the mirror. We have to take this seriously, we have to be responsible, and we have to be armed with the truth. Now go out there and start researching this for yourself. That's it for today's episode. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 142 of The Corbett Report, The Underpopulation Problem. Yeah.